use them to further your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. There's a couple back there that might need to be separated. I'm not sure. Keep an eye on them. Okay. We don't need to be separated. We've never been married. <laughs> it's going to be one of those days. It's all right. Doug, you're very astute in my talking too fast. Uh, sometimes, sometimes Amber, in the end of an evening, or we're having dinner or whatever, she'll just look at me and say, okay, you're done. You've used all your words. Just... <laughs> And so I'll just, I'll just sit down on the couch and go, okay, fine. We'll just watch TV in silence. Great. But, you know, there, there's, there's all this research that says that women use this many words and men use this many. And I, I'm definitely breaking that mold, I think. So, or I'm just real in touch with my feminine side, one of the two. So last, few, uh, last week we talked about the Trinity. And we're, we're trying to, this is all part of a, of a master plan. That we want to spend three weeks on the, the foundational truth of our faith. So the Trinity... The bigness of God, He is in charge, He is part of everything. The community of the Trinity, that when all the language of the Bible you see talk of marriage and community and commitment, it's supposed to be seen through the eyes of the Trinity. A perfect relationship that we strive towards being just a glimmer of in our marriages, our relationships, who we work with, who we employ, who employs us. That all that language is really getting us towards the idea that there's a perfect community that's to exist amongst people um, we fall short, but God doesn't. And we talked about the revelation of God's word, that in here we get to see who he is. We don't have to question who he is. We don't have to doubt who he is. He tells us exactly who he is. Well, then today we're going to talk about creation, um, how it was made, or at least well, how we think it was made. How it was made, we're going to talk about the fall, a sin, how it entered into the mix, and then how God refuses to let us go. And next week we're going to talk about Jesus, the incarnation of God in flesh, the importance of the virgin birth, Sometimes a stumbling block because people just kind of gloss over it. But if when you look at the fulfillment of prophecies and what happens throughout the Old Testament leading to the necessity of a virgin birth, it's a very clear fundamental root that we have to let grow deep into our soul. Um, We can't just pass over it. And then we have Jesus and his work on the cross and why we have to have sacrifice on the cross. So all this is to set up a core foundation of who we are as Christians. And then in the month of December... We're challenging you to read through the whole Old Testament in the month of December. No one's freaking out yet? We're going to use the storybook Bible. Um, And so if you have kids, or if you have um, young people, or if you don't, um, I've told you before, the storybook Bible is required reading before going on staff for a lot of parachurch organizations like Campus Crusade for Christ. It is an amazing book that if you read a chapter a night for 24 nights, Then when we have our Christmas Eve service, you land at the passage and the peace where Jesus comes to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. So in four weeks, you're going to, three and a half, you're going to get a survey of the the Old Testament. The promise of Jesus. And so if you read this at home, a little bit at night, you read it with your kids, then we're going to preach on it on Sunday mornings. And you're going to see that the whole Old Testament testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. That that's the goal. So... Three weeks of rooted, this is what it is to be a Christian. Three weeks of Old Testament leading to Jesus. And so when Christmas Eve lands, we're all going to be blown away by the fact that God would come dwell with us. That's our goal. So, today, we've got a lot to cover. I talk fast anyway, but I'm going to have to ramp it up a notch. Because I'm hungry. So, let's pray, and we'll dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time. Um, Thank you for this space we can come in here. And we can have people 
in, across a hall and down a hall and through a wall cooking food for us and preparing for us and serving us in huge ways. And then we can sit in here and we can have people lead us in worship. Lead us into the throne room of grace. Lead us into singing your word from the tops of our lungs. And then we can open up your word and can see just how you love us through this love letter you wrote to us. That we will see exactly how you are, how you love. Because if we follow the vein of Jesus from beginning to end, we can see that it's all about a, a work of love in us. And we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, you open our hearts, open our eyes to the truth of the cross, and let us see it from the beginning of your word to the end. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Um, so we're going to spend time talking about creation, evolution, how it happened, and we're going to do it in about seven minutes. Now, there's a multitude of study, of facts, of books, of resources I can throw your way that will help you understand these things. But the core is that God did it. That God did it. Now, we'll look at a multitude of ways and some ways that people think and good Christians have thought deeply and long and hard about it. But the key is that God made it. So we start with just the basic fact that God made it all. Um, but we look at what St. Augustine told us. The Bible is not a scientific textbook seeking to answer the ever-changing inquiries of science, but rather a theological textbook seeking to reveal God and the means by which he saves us. Now, for a long time, um, I was really confused about God and creation and evolution. And I was taking all these social science classes and archaeology classes and Everyone was telling me that my belief, that I, I had this conversion experience with Jesus. I'm on my knees at a stage like this. I'm, fall, I'm on my face. I'm crying. I, I know this is real. Then I go to college. And it's like, well, no, you're just an idiot. And I didn't believe it because in my heart I knew it was true. I had the experience. Like I keep trying to, to share with you. You have your personal experience with Jesus, and then you have the truth of God's word. And it's this dance that we dance between the rock-solid truth of his word and our personal experience, and together that's where we find rest. And so I really struggled for a long time because I thought that this book was going to, be, to answer every question I ever had. <laughs> it doesn't. But it consistently points to God and to Jesus as to the answer of all the problems of the world. So I, I used to be willing to throw out everything that God said over this page. My Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and part of 3 are on one page. And I was willing to say, I can't buy that. I can't believe that. I question God's word. I question the whole of scripture because of this one page. Um, I think that's a fool's errand. I'm unwilling to throw out everything. Now, I understand that if through science and logic and reason that you're supposed to have a presupposition, a baseline, and everything builds upon that. But you don't look at this book for those answers. This book points to the life of Jesus Christ and to the truth of the gospel. But there are some scientific answers there. But we'll first look at a couple scientific things. Mitochondrial Eve. Now, this is wrong. It should be matrilineal. I must have been thinking manly thoughts at the time. But matrilineal is that things are passed down through the mother. Patrilineal is things are passed down through the father. Well, I noticed it this morning. and didn't change it. I messed it up. That whether you fall on the side of evolution or you fall on the side of creation, scientists on both ends say that we come from a common mother. But you can trace down through mitochondrial DNA that we all come from the same mother. That's either evolutionists would say it's a missing link, or a creationist would say, I don't think it's missing, her name was Eve. Right? And so you have both sides landing the exact same truth, which is why racism shouldn't exist. Because you're really just talking about your cousin um, from another mother, but for some reason it exists. Theologically, 
It's against God's word. Biologically, it's against everything that biology would teach. Racism shouldn't exist. And then people start, well, you know, generations. I had this teacher that I, he was my teacher in high school. Taught European history, world history. And then I was his colleague. When I got my teaching license, I taught with him at the high school. And he used to love to talk about how he was related to the kings and queens of Europe. So you would be teaching about, you know, European history. And so, you know, but my great, great through my father's mother's brother, I was part of that family and all this stuff. Well, when I was in high school, I was like, man, he's so smart. He knows these things. When I go to college and I do take some anthropology and archaeology classes, and I learn that we're all related to the 13th generation. That if any of you do research in your family tree, if you can trace back to 13 generations back, they all cross. The whole world crosses at the 13th generation. So I went up to him and said, hey, could you stop saying that? Because you're just wrong. Which was always a good conversation to have with someone who was your mentor, and now you're picking on him. But so I just so scientifically to start their baseline, we're all related. Racism is false, and it makes no sense. Well, we land with Mr. Charles Darwin. Now, do you, some of you may have studied this in high school or college and the theory of evolution, but I don't know that many people put out there what the real title of the book is. The real title of the book is the, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. At his baseline research study was the argument that certain races were better than others. So through science and DNA, we see that evolution, that science and DNA study can never lead us to racism because it's, it's false. But the theory that everyone purports in evolution was begun with a hypothesis, or at least a, his goal was towards favored races. Racism. That's why you have social Darwinism later on. Herbert Spencer says that these people are better than others. Eugenics. Think of the horrors that have been done on this planet because some people thought they were better than someone else. So, I don't buy it. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn things and there's not adaptation, the micro and macro evolution. I'm not saying all those things. But at the core of science is a belief in different makes some people better and some people not. How about a Nobel Prize winner? Dr. George Wald, he won the Nobel Prize in medicine for the study of the eyeball. So he studied the eyeball and he got a Nobel Prize in 67 for it. His statement on faith is, when it comes to the origin of life, we have only two possibilities as to how life arose. One is spontaneous generation arising to evolution. The other is a supernatural creative act of God. There is no third possibility. Nobel Prize winning medical doctor, scientist. You've got two possibilities. God made it, spontaneous generation. He continues to say, Spontaneous generation was scientifically disproved 100 years ago by Louis Pasteur, Spellazzini, Reedy, and others. That leads us scientifically to only one possible conclusion. That life arose as a supernatural creative act of God. I will not accept that philosophically because I do not want to believe in God. How convenient. Therefore, I choose to believe in that which I know is scientifically impossible. Spontaneous generation arising to evolution. I love his honesty. At least he's honest. Evolution is scientifically impossible, but I'm going to believe it because I refuse to submit my life to God. I refuse to accept that he is in charge. I refuse to submit my life to anyone but myself. I'm in charge. At least he's honest. 
Um, that was what's great about the guy that came and spoke at, at the University of Wyoming, spoke at UW a few weeks ago in the genome. He's talking about traits, and he's a scientist on the cutting edge of DNA and genetics research. And he stands up and says, I'm a scientist. Science has to leave the door open for faith. Has to. It's part of science. You never seal the door shut. You leave it open to faith. And then he consistently professed his faith in Jesus Christ. Why he's a Christian is because of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Um, he was born in a Hindu family, lived a Hindu life, just consistently went, he studied all the religions, reminded me of myself in college, and he, was, he landed on the person of Jesus Christ. So he sees science not as the antithesis of faith, he sees his faith as building into his science. So, what do we believe as Christians? I already told you, God did it. Now people believe in multiple streams of this. People will say, they are historic creationists. That the world is old, humanity is young, and the words in the beginning mark a split. That, that the billions of years of this planet's existence happen between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. That there are billions of years of existence, but God put it in order. Just based on the Hebrew language and how it's written, that there, the word in the beginning and the word chaos means disorder, means unorganized. And so a historic creationist says the earth is very old. But modern man, homo homo sapien, modern, modern man, is very young. That man is very young. That our modern creation that we exist, it's very young. But the earth is very old. Um, John Salehammer wrote a terrific book called Genesis Unbound. Um, I, can, I can send you, it's about a 500-page book. But I can, if you want it, I can give you the 17-page summary that some other scientists wrote. Which, that's a way more accessible piece of paper. Young Earth Creationists, the Ken Ham, the Creation Museum in, in Kentucky, that the world is young, humanity is young, that the world's about 6,000 years old. This is based upon taking genealogical, there's three genealogies in Genesis, and they trace them back and say the earth is about 6,000 years old. Um, they believe things like um, that the flood compressed, so carbon-14 dating's wrong because of the, the pressure of the earth, or pressure of the water on the earth, and so young Earth Creationists. You also have the gap theory. There's an, the earth is old, humans are young, and it's a second creation. Adam and Eve are the second creation. So dinosaurs and things of all that were a first creation. God wasn't happy with it. He destroyed it all, and he created again. And so humanity is very young. Literary framework, they say that Genesis is a poem. And um, you've got the first three days are the forming, and the, the last three days are the filling, that it's a poem. It's not meant to be read like a, a road map. It's been meant to be read like a poem. And there, it's, there's some truth to that because Genesis is very poetic. And when in Hebrew, it's a very poetic book. Then you have day-age view. The 24-hour days are not literal, but stages of time. Lots of people land here. Um, there's some issues with that because the same Hebrew word used for 24-hour day in Genesis 1 is the exact same Hebrew word used later in Genesis. So it's not like the language changed. A day is a day. But I'm okay if you believe that too. Um, and then theistic evolution. The God created the beginning, took a step back, and he let evolution play out, except when he breathed life into man. Now, there's six ways. There are Christians amongst all streams in these ways of thinking about how the world's created. And as long as I sit down a table from, across from a table from you, and you say, God made it, I believe that there was evolution and cavemen and the missing link is when they all died off, and then there's one that was different, and there's no missing link because God breathed into this one and made modern, modern man you love Jesus, we're good. You're a young earth theorist. You're a young earth creationist. The earth is only 6,000 years old. I, I, don't, 
I'm not there. That's not where I land. But I'm okay with you if you land there. The point is, if you can say with all of your heart and honesty that God made it, that's the core belief as a Christian. That God made this. You can't go from aliens populating the earth because of some spaceship and then write a big book and call it some weird anetics and say that that's who we are. That doesn't, that God made it. That we aren't from an ooze. That God made us. Then you can land that a core belief that we're Christian. I tend to be now, I'm a historical creationist. That doesn't mean that we, can, we can't get along if you disagree with me. Just That's where I land. I don't think it's honest for me to lay all these out and tell you not where I land. I land at historic creation. That the earth is very old, that modern creation is very young. Dinosaurs did exist. They did roam the planet. God wiped them out and ordered it. Now, some people in young earth theory think differently. That that's where dragons come from. That in the mythology of the world, the humans did exist with dinosaurs. And that's where the mythology of dragons come from. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's just not where I land. Mainly because of the Bible. In the Hebrew word, we see this word, reshit, which means in a definite period of time, in the beginning. The word there is reshit. It's not a definite, it just means it's not a specific space. We see the words heaven and earth. Um, Eretz means land, not earth, and heavens is sky. So we don't see, in the Hebrew language for me, the writing of the Bible is more important than the scientific research. That's why land, I'm a historic creationist. I think the earth is really old. I think our modern idea of creation, modern man, is very young. But if you're a theistic evolutionist, that apes become men, and then God breathes life into a certain two apes, and that's how we end up with, then we're okay, as long as you say God did it. When you go outside the bounds of God creating, then you have a problem. We have serious problems. Okay? So, God made it. And then we have the fall, when God judges. So God makes it, makes it perfect. Well, why, is this, why do we have a mess? Why is it such a mess? It's because we messed it up. The one thing that you can't argue is G.K. Chesterton. He wrote some great books on, on orthodoxy. Um, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Kind of like when I tell you, um, which I stole from someone else, that the only thing we bring to the table in our, in our faith with Jesus Christ, the only thing we bring in His grace and His mercy, the only thing we bring to the table in our relationship with God is our sin. It's all we bring to the table. And then He fills us with His grace and mercy. I don't think it's very hard to prove that we're sinful people. Right? If, you've, if you read any newspapers, watch any television, if you've studied history for at least just the last 10 years, think about the horrific things we do to each other. You study the history of mankind that we have recorded, we are really good at doing horrific things to each other. For power, for greed, for multiple reasons. So the idea that we would reject sin... Well, we're just, we're all good. We just got bad days. You're, yeah, we're all bad. And then thankfully Jesus helps us have good days. So the idea of sin entering in is a core tenet of Christian faith. But where does it come from? In Genesis 3, we see um, the beauty of creation. Unfolding and falling away in what is called the fall. In Genesis 3, you've got Genesis 1, Genesis 2, God has made it. You have the story, you have, two, you have the retelling of Genesis. So in Genesis 1, you have um, Adam and Eve are created. 
Um, in one twenty-seven, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So throughout Genesis, you have to... If any man tries to exert his superiority over a woman through Genesis, they need to be slapped. Um, you see very clearly that we're created male and female in the image of the Trinity, in the image of God. Equal dignity. That's why there's also no excuse for abuse. There's no excuse for... Um, taking women for granted or abusing women, there's zero excuse for this. We're equal image bearers of God. And we see later in Genesis that there are different roles, there's different jobs to be had, but that doesn't take away your dignity. We're equal image bearers of God. Men are not not better than women, women aren't better than men. We go through Genesis 2 and we see it's good, we retell it where Eve came from Adam. So you have this picture from Adam's rib comes woman, and so you have this, that there's this clear picture of man and woman side by side. That women aren't to walk a step behind a man, and a man's not to walk a step behind a woman. That we're to be together. We're to be shared image bearers together, walking this planet, stewarding God's creation. Then we get into chapter 3, the fall. Um, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So we see very clearly the beginning parts of sin entering in are misquoting God's word. Did God say, Don't touch the tree? You can go back and read. He didn't say that. He said, Don't eat it. And how quickly we begin to twist God's word. How quickly we begin to twist it. The serpent says, oh, well, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say you can't eat from anything in the garden? Is that what God said? No, he said don't eat from this one. So Satan begins to twist it. Oh, surely he didn't say you couldn't eat from any of them. Oh, no, 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 just the one, because if we can't even eat it because we touch it, we'll die. God didn't say either one of those things. He said this one, don't eat the fruit. That's all he said. So how quickly the twisting of God's word leads to sin. That's why it's so important that we study this book and we care what it says and we don't falter in it. Because when we start to twist it, bad things happen. We continue on. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's the same three sins. The same three temptations to sin used in Genesis chapter 3 that are used to tempt Jesus in the desert that are used for all of us today. Satan has no new tricks. He comes after us the same way always. First, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. But surely eating it. So eating things, the pleasure of the flesh. I want it because it tastes good, feels good. Nothing this bad could feel this right. Right? I'm sure we've all encountered people like that. Well, God wouldn't want to deny me from this. It tastes great. God wouldn't want to deny me from this because it makes me feel good inside. He doesn't make me feel good anymore, so I need someone new to make me feel good. She doesn't make me feel good, so I need someone new. This doesn't work anymore. I don't, it's about me. And me and I, I, I need to feel good. Then it goes into your eyes. Your eyes will be open. We see things and we want them. This is kind of like sins of materialism. Sins of covetedness, I want that. I will do whatever it takes to get that. 
I mean, think about how many ads are on TV that play into these two alone. How many times have you been watching television and a commercial pops up for a restaurant, and the next time you drive by that restaurant, you're like, oh, wait, I think they have like a two for 20 deal. Let's go there. Where'd that come from? Did you even want Applebee's? Well, not really, but all of a sudden, I remember that show. I want it. Tastes good. It's going to feel good. Well, this, God says you shouldn't do this. I know, but it feels good. But you shouldn't have this. I know, but I want it. I see it and I want it. I desire it. I want it. And then we see that we want to be like God. That we want to be like God. That's pride. There is no way. I have several degrees. I'm quite the learned man. There is no way that God would say in his word something that I would disagree with. I am smart and I can figure this book out. I know how to do these things. I took the class in college how to lie with statistics. God's just manipulating people to do his will. I, I, I'm smarter than that. Right? Don't we all play that game? Well, yeah, God says that these are sins or we shouldn't do this, but that's not for me. That's for those people. I can handle it. I'm smart. I'm a good man. I got it all figured out. Well, God says this is what you do for, to obey him. Well, but don't you know that that's been twisted through the last several generations? of There's new Bible scholarship. They found a, a manuscript of Judas hidden in a safe deposit box. So now I don't have to listen to anything anymore. That's a, that, that's a true story. The lost gospel of Judas. So we're going to throw out 2,000 years of church history and tradition and all the work that's been done and say, well, some guy had this revolutionary document, a safe deposit box. Yeah, that's pretty revolutionary. Right? It's the same thing. Satan comes after us the exact same way he always has. He doesn't have any new tricks. He tells them, you should eat it. D.A. Carson sums it up this way. The heart of all this evil is idolatry. That every sin is idolatry. It is the de-godding of God. It's the creature swinging his puny fist in the face of his master and saying, in effect, if you do not see things my way, I'll make my own gods. I'll be my own god. Small wonder that the sin most frequently said to arouse God's wrath is not murder or pillage or other horizontal barbarism, but idolatry, that which dethrones God. That is also why in every sin it is God who is the most offended party, as David himself well understood. So David, um, when he sins against Bathsheba and her husband, he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, which we could argue that wasn't wise. She's bathing on a rooftop. David sees her and says, I want it. I see her. I want her. Brings her to his bed, and he wants to feel her. I want her. She feels good. She's mine. So then in his mind, he begins to twist all that he has been taught and all that he knows. This woman is now pregnant. I wanted her. So now I'm going to do is I'm going to send her off, send her husband off to battle to die. And then when he's called out in his sin, he writes Psalm 51. He writes what grieves God. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So David understood. He understood that his sin he committed, even though all these things happened, he forced a woman to his bed, killed her husband. All these things that happened that were hit, he did to these people, his first and foremost sin was the sin against God. He sinned against God. So when he cries out in forgiveness, he says, I've, I've sinned against you and you alone, Lord. And all these other lives that were destroyed in the wake... 
are results of that sin. But he sinned first against God. When that first sin hits, it fractured the whole planet. There aren't supposed to be typhoons that wipe out tens of thousands of people in the Philippines. There's not supposed to be raging cancer cells that fight against your own body. There isn't supposed to be women captured and taken, held in captive, in captivity, in child pornography rings. There is not, it's not supposed to be murder and death. It's not supposed to be. That's not what God intended. But our pride and the sin of our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, caused it all to happen. From that point forward, the whole world has been fractured. In Romans, we see even creation groans out for this to stop. That not even the planet wants to cycle into a storm that's going to wipe people out. That the planet is groaning for the children of God to finally rise, for the nations to finally hear the name of Jesus, so that he can come back and end all this pain. You've got to feel the weight of that original sin. The weight of our rebellion against God has caused everything bad that you've ever experienced in your life stems from that one act. We see the promise of Jesus found in the Proto-Evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. So as Adam and Eve are there in the garden, they eat of the apple. Nobody? wasn't an apple. doesn't say apple. That's just great Renaissance artwork. just says fruit. We don't know. Um, so you have in it this idea that this, this, what's happening is Satan is tempting them, and they give in. In Genesis 3, they give in to the sin. They give in to his temptations. And it says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that was delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they were, we see them in Genesis 2, their husband and wife. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So marriage is a creative institution. Before the fall, naked and ashamed, walking with God unashamed in their relationship, unashamed with each other, not afraid of their past, not afraid of their present. The fall hits and now they're ashamed. They make clothes for themselves. They're ashamed. But don't forget, men, that it's our responsibility. Too often women have been put in this place. Well, you know, you ate the apple first. You hear this in jokes, you hear it in movies, you'll hear it in casual conversation. It's not right. There's two kinds of sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of not doing what you should do and sins of doing things you shouldn't do. And we see Adam here. She took of its fruit and ate. So Eve did take the first bite. But she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. His sin, there was rebellion. Maybe the first sin is a sin of commission by Eve. But the second was more dastardly because the man was right there and he didn't protect his wife. He didn't protect his wife. At any moment, he should have shut the mouth of Satan. He should have told him to shut up. He should have said, God told me what to do. God gave me the direction, and I relayed that to my wife. It's my responsibility. So guys, you've got to feel the weight of that. You've got to feel the weight of the sin of the world, the weight of the sin in your own house, the weight of the sin in your own heart, that you have to feel that weight. That because Adam did not protect his wife, he did not stand in the gap, destruction entered. 
Don't ever put that on the women. You could casual jokingly, ha-ha, but how does that degrade the women in our lives when we say, well, you started all this mess, right? It's not the truth. Man did. He should have protected his wife. We then see in the curse, um, we see the per- first promise of the gospel in, ver- in Genesis three fifteen. God's talking to the serpent, talking to Satan. I will put an enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We get the first promise of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. He promises that one will come and crush Satan. And Satan will bruise his heel. will nail it to a cross. The first promise of Jesus is found in Genesis chapter 3. We continue on through the whole curse. That there's going to be tension between women and their kids and their husband. None of you ladies experience that, do you? That men will work and work hard and have the weight of provision, have the weight of taking care of their families, but it's going to be a burden. Even though you feel the weight of providing for your family and taking care of your family, you're going to feel distant because you really would rather be with your kids. And you have to, Isn't that the work of us all men? Figuring that out? How do I provide and be a good man and take care of my family, but then also be there for my family? Isn't that the weight that we all feel? God says that's our curse. We have to live a life trying to figure this out to make sure our house is protected, but also make sure people in our home are loved. That we carry the weight of our children's faith. We carry the weight of our wife's hearts on us. And then we have a wife who's not going to agree with us. That's the tension. That's why when Jesus is in a marriage and you can wade through that tension through the the faith in Jesus Christ, it makes Jesus and God look huge. Because two people that are hard to live with, love each other and get through all the garbage, it makes him famous. That's the point of your marriage, not your happiness. I promise you. Now, we keep going. The Lord said to the serpent, I already did that. Um, God pursues in covenants. God speaks in covenant language. So covenant is like your marriage is a covenant. The first covenant is with Adam and Eve. We see that in a marriage is a covenant. That's why when you break that covenant, it hurts. That's why when you break a covenant... When a marriage covenant is broken, it hurts. It doesn't go away. That's why Jesus says in, in Mark, where he says that divorce never goes away. Not because he's saying you don't have, there are biblical reasons for divorce. He's not saying if you had a divorce, there's no grace or mercy for you. What he's saying is that it hurts. It never goes away. You've got kids together. You lived life together. It doesn't go away. So the first covenant is Adam and Eve and their marriage. But all these covenants are important. In ancient Middle East, covenants were made in blood. So if you had two people pledging to do something big, I don't think we just shake hands and say, hey, uh, I'll come over tomorrow and fix that for you. Well, we got to kill something real fast. I don't think they did that. But if it was a major covenant, a major bond, they would get a goat, get whatever. They'd cut it in half and separate it, and the blood would be everywhere. And both parties would walk through the blood. And it was signifying to them and to everyone around this is important. This promise I made, if I don't fulfill this promise, death is what awaits me. Death is what comes my way. So when God starts talking covenant language and blood sovereignty, that's the point. Have you guys ever been freaked out by all the dead animals in the Old Testament? Just a little bit? Well, let's praise God. Got something to kill? Right? Is that what always happens? We need a burnt offering. I, I put some rocks together and I made an altar. Well, now we need something to kill on it. Like, how did they even eat? Like, these are tribal people. Okay, I'm just stop. They killed everything. But why? 
Why is that important? Because it's a sacrifice. If you take one of your goats, you take one of your sheep, and you kill it, it no longer produces food, no longer produces the milk or the wool, produces nothing. It's important that this sacrifice is real, and it's important. So the whole Old Testament system of blood sacrifice is to point us to Jesus. They would sacrifice the Passover lamb. They'd institute all these rituals. Sacrifice, sacrifice. The point was for you to realize all of your sacrifices still don't do away with sin. All of your sacrifices still put you at the altar needing to sacrifice more. So that when Jesus came and said, I am the sacrifice, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm going to die, then people would go, that's, that's the key. That's the Messiah. But just like that scientist that rejects the basic fundamental fact of spontaneous generation of life can't happen, people rejected what they saw before them. I'm not going to follow him. My Messiah is supposed to come with a sword, not a sword stabbed into his side. Right? So they rejected it. But this, this covenant was made in blood. And it was made to be a bond that cannot be broken. You cannot break this bond. We see them throughout the Old Testament. There's six major covenants in the Bible. The first one we already talked about was marriage. Marriage is a sign of the covenant. And Sabbath. We see these two things given to Adam and Eve. Marriage is a sign of the covenant. And Sabbath, a day of rest. That God rested on the seventh day. God, the creator of the universe, do you think he needed a day off? I mean, that's, that's like putting, you know, that, that makes no sense. He makes it all. He just spoke everything into existence in six days or ordered it in the historic creation understanding and he needs a day off? Isn't he like limitless in his power and his might? That's part of our covenant. He's telling us you need to rest. You need a day of rest, a day of thanksgiving. That was the point of the Sabbath. You bust it all week long. You take a day and say, I need to enjoy all that God has given. I mean, how many times... When I, when I was in high school, I went, I think it was 45 days, no day off, working a part-time job while in high school. And so I would just work, and I'm supposed to work, and my dad worked and provided. And if you don't have time to rest, how, how messy do you get? Like, how, what big, how big of a mess are you when you don't have a time to rest? But there's also the flip of that, when you don't work at all. It's like, how, ba- how bad do we do things when we do no work and we have idle time? with our thoughts, with our hands, how much evil do we get ourselves into when we have all that idle time? So you've got to find the balance. Hard work for the kingdom and in rest. We have to rest well. Well, that was given to Adam and Eve. We then have, um, we'll just keep going, Noah. The covenant with Noah. Now we understand that Noah was this man who, um, after Adam and Eve, we have all this humanity that's just wicked. And God says, in a, a moment, he says, I wish I'd never made them. He's grieving what's happened to what he intended. And so he speaks to Noah. And he says, Noah, I want you to do something for me. I want you to build a boat in the desert where there's no water. So we see faith entering into this covenant. I mean, when you say, I'm going to move to Saudi Arabia, the center of it, and I'm going to build a giant boat because there's water coming. What would all of you say? Like, guy's crazy or he's got a lot of faith in something I don't believe in. Noah proved he had faith. But there's something that we need to discuss. This idea that he was a righteous man. So how this is typically taught, or a lot of times we miss it, is that he saw the wickedness of man. Um, he grieved his heart. He wanted them all dead. And he says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. 
man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A lot of time we teach this, or you hear it taught, that he was the only righteous man on the planet. That he was the only one that was righteous. So because of his righteousness, then God is going to show him favor, and then because of his righteousness, he'll save his family. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Noah found favor. The word favor in the Old Testament, you can, in, you can insert grace. You can put mercy. Noah found grace in the Lord. He was a wicked man just like everyone else who was born wicked. But God chose him. I find favor in you because I'm going to build a nation off of you. I'm going to end this wickedness and you are going to, I'm making a covenant with you. And he wipes out the whole planet. That's why sometimes it seems a little silly when we put like the Noah's Ark picture like on our kids' nursery rooms. And what really should be is like the boat and all the people and then like water with like people floating in it. Right? Giant animals. We always forget that part. We forget that that cute little picture in the nursery is a sign of God's wrath. He was so sick of the wickedness that existed on this planet, he wiped it out. He wiped it out. And he chose to show grace and mercy to one family and said, from you, I will rebuild this. From you, I will rebuild this. But it wasn't because he was righteous. It's because God chose him of his faith and he chose him to show grace. He rebuilds. He rebuilds on that faith. And he promises, I will never do this again. I will give you a rainbow in the sky that when the rain subsides and the sun comes out and you see a rainbow, that's the proof that I will not do this again. I'm not going to wipe out the planet again. He makes a covenant with Noah. We continue on. We see a covenant um, again with Abraham and his descendants. We see in Abraham this promise that from you will come Jesus. From you will come the Savior. From you will rise up a people that will bless the nations. And there's all the imagery of Jesus. Even when he goes to take Isaac to the top of the mountain to kill him. Abraham and Sarah don't have kids. They can't have kids. They're old. God promises, I'll give you a kid. And they're like, I'm in my 90s, no way. And God gives them a child, a precious child. Gives them Isaac. He grows to be a young man. And God says, Abraham, I want you to go to the mountaintop and you're going to sacrifice your son. Now we see in the book of Hebrews that Abraham trusted that even if he did kill his son, that God was going to raise him from the dead. So it wasn't this this blind following, I'm just going to go murder my son. So Abraham goes to the top of the mountain and who, what happens, what's Isaac do? Isaac carries the wood that he's to be killed upon to the top of the mountain. He lays it out. He lays down his life. Lays down ready for the father to kill him. And then the angel of the Lord, you'll see throughout the Old Testament, angel of the Lord shows up. When you see the word, the angel of the Lord, the angel shows up. The angel shows up in the burning bush. That's always an image of Jesus. That's Christ throughout the Old Testament. So the angel of the Lord shows up and says, no, 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 no. I'll provide the sacrifice. There's a lamb over here. Don't kill your son. We get the imagery that God the Father will put his son on a piece of wood and kill him. That God is providing the sacrifice. And Jesus is all over the Old Testament. That's why it's so cool. He promised himself in Genesis 3 throughout it all. It's about Jesus. So we have the covenant with Abraham. Your descendants will show people that I'm righteous. And we see that. All these Old Testament evil 
groups and tribes rise up and the Israelites smash them. That through God and his people, his descendants of Abraham, they're proving that God is a God of justice and righteousness. We continue. Through Moses and the Israelites, God swears to be the protector. What's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? It's the Passover. He hears the cries of his people and he gives them the Passover meal. He casts them out. He sends them out and he goes to the burning bush. He gives them the law. You have through Moses, all of these things unfolding the people of God. He promises, I will take care of you. I'll provide for you. I will take care of you. That's the whole point of the 40 days and the, the 40 years in the desert. He provides manna from heaven. He provides sunlight at night to protect them from wild animals. And he provides them a cloud to shadow them from the sun and the harmful rays. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, we talk about everything comes from God. You are daily bread is imagery of the Exodus. That we rely on God daily for our daily life. He doesn't promise us tomorrow. But he promises your daily bread. He'll provide for you. David promises a kingdom. So you go from Abraham and a tribe to Moses and a land. Then you go to um, continue this growth to where you have a kingdom. That through David and the kingdom, we're going to expand even more. That through David, you're going to see expansion. You're going to see influence. Um, But also we see the consistent promise that from David comes Jesus. From David comes Jesus. The promise is Jesus. And then we get Jesus in the church. That Jesus promises to be in the church. The signs of the covenant that we have with him, with Jesus, is he gives us the faith to believe. We repent of our sin and we turn away from our wicked ways and we cling to him. That he will be the one that will cleanse us. That he will be the one that will correct us. You don't become perfect in a day. You become perfect when you're dead. You become perfect when either he comes back and this body dies, you get your resurrection body, or you die and you go to be with him in heaven. Until that day, we have the church. We see the visible signs of the covenant in communion and in baptism. That when you're baptized, you're showing the whole community that he's your king. It's a public profession of faith that's been done in your heart already. When we take communion every week, it's a constant reminder of the cross. It's a constant reminder of his grace and mercy for us. And he promises to never let us go. So, I'm skipping all the scripture. I hate that, but we've got to get through it. As a result of the fall, respect for authority was replaced by rebellion. A clear conscience was replaced by guilt and shame. Blessing was replaced by physical, spiritual, and eternal punishment. Viewing God as a friend to walk with was replaced by viewing him as an enemy to hide from. Trust was replaced by fear. Love was replaced by indifference and hatred. Intimacy with God was replaced by separation from God. Freedom to obey was replaced by enslavement to sin. Honesty was replaced with lying and deceit. A little bit depressing, isn't it? But we have the promise of Jesus. It's in the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That he created it in shalom. Hebrew word for completeness or wholeness. It was made perfect. Our sin, our rebellion, fractured it all. Breaks it. Then, in his good and just nature, God has to have a payment. So he gives us the Old Testament, the sacrificial language. That we understand that God can't just pass over this. He has to have payment 
for sin or he's not God. He's not just. He's not holy. There must be payment. So we see the Old Testament lay out this pattern. Sacrifice hurts. Might cause your belly to grumble when you kill your last goat. Sacrifice hurts. It's bloody. Sin is dangerous. Sin is bloody. Lays it all out. But then he gives us the promise of Christ. That Jesus fixes it all. That Jesus comes to be that final payment. That's why we don't kill goats up here. I know we have lots of cows around and we can have an agricultural mix and we could do that. We don't do that anymore. Because the sacrifice is on the cross. How we remember the sacrifice is when we take communion. When we take communion. A new world's coming. At the end, you get a resurrection body. When you take your last breath on this planet, you take your first breath in eternity. But when Jesus comes back, we see in Revelation 19.20 and continuing on, that a new heaven and a new earth will exist. That when Jesus comes back, all of the saints in heaven will meet with their bodies in the ground and they will collide and you get a resurrection body. Now, how does that happen? I don't know. I just know it's going to happen. What's it going to look like? I don't know. But the picture of the story is that what was broken in the garden is fixed in the new heaven, new earth. God isn't making some palace on a cloud like in Empire Strikes Back and you're up there in a cloud city hanging out. That's not what's happening. What's happening is he's recreating how the garden is supposed to be. We will live in perfection the way Adam and Eve intended to live forever. It's a picture of beauty. It's a picture of no age, no sickness, no death, no despair, but living as we were intended to live. We can't be Christians that teach escapism. I just can't wait till I just get out of this place. Well, you're going to be sorely disappointed when he brings you back and you live on this place for all of eternity. You're going back to the garden. He's restoring all that's been destroyed. And our lives tell this story. We tell the story as the image bearers of God of the correction and the reclaiming of what is his. If I'm honest, I wish you would just do it a lot faster. If I'm honest, I just wish you would do it faster. There's so much pain, so much destruction, so much horror on this planet. I just I wish you would do it faster. But he didn't ask me. So until then, I have the covenant that Christ has made with the church to proclaim the gospel to bring the good news, to help those who are hurting, to share the truth of Jesus Christ. So that when that day comes, when his, in 2 Peter, when he, he's holding back his hand of wrath, when he looses it and lets it go, then all my family and friends and all those I've encountered and all those I've worked hard for and tried to labor for would know him and be there in the rapture or be there at the end. That's a whole other conversation. We'll be there at the end. So, as we end this, you have to know beyond a shadow of doubt that God loves you more than you can comprehend. I, I just gave a 40-minute, eh, okay, maybe 50, summary of the whole Old Testament. That at any one of these places, God could have said, I'm sick of it. I'm done with them. They refuse to obey me. They call me a liar. They won't, they won't give me the worship I'm due. How dare they? And through it all, he says, I love you. I love you. So you can't walk into this place and think that you have done so much that God can't love you. That is reverse pride. That's saying that you're the only person in this room that God can't love 
and can't rescue. That's you saying you're the worst person that's ever existed. He's no way he could use me. That's pride. It's a reverse form of pride that says you're the worst person in the room. It's like taking an open hand and slapping Jesus in the face on the cross. So don't, don't walk in or out of this building thinking you're the worst person that's ever existed. Because you're not. I just showed you through six covenants of the Old Testament. Wicked men, murderers who God used, adulterers who God used and said, I'm going to make them righteous because of my grace and my mercy. I pray you know that deep in your heart. I know people walk just like Adam and Eve. As soon as they knew what they had done wrong, they walked around in guilt and shame. They made clothes for themselves. They hid in the garden. Like you can really hide from God. They hid from him. And God walks in like a loving father and says, what did you do? What did you do? And immediately, Adam blames the woman, and the woman blames the serpent. And it all just unravels from there. You are made for a relationship with God. You are made to worship him. Do not reject his love. He loves you more than you can comprehend. And he wants to be in a relationship with you. So as we pray and wrap up the service, um, do our final song. Um, if anybody needs to pray, these steps are great to kneel at and cry out to God. If anyone needs to talk to an elder, if God stirred your heart, you want to share that with these people that want to love on you, please do it now. Um, if you've been on the fence of joining this church, when you join a church, you're, you're walking into a covenant with a group of people. Knowing that we will let you down, knowing that people will upset you, but you are cleaving to this group of people because it's a covenant relationship. That we are in this for the long haul, and we have a mission before us, and we're going to fulfill that mission by the grace of God. If you want to join us, we would love to have you enter into that covenant. We won't kill anything, but we'll take lots of communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Um, thank you for this time when we can open up your word and we can see very clearly just how much you love us. And we don't have to doubt that. I know sometimes we get bogged down in just the reading of scripture and how long it is and the words and we don't know the culture and we don't understand the context. And I pray that you'd help us to get past all of that. And we can see the consistent theme of your love for us. To the point where, as we talked about last week, I mean, Jesus, you stepped out of heaven, the perfect relationship in the Trinity and a place of mutual love and respect and affection. And you stepped out of that to be with us. And Lord, then you took all of our sin upon yourself. Every drop that we deserve, you put on yourself. And it puts us in a place, Lord, where we fall at our knees and we thank you for all that you've done. Even in our arrogance and our pride of thinking we've got it figured out or we can do it on our own, you consistently prove through your word and through the people who love you that you put in our lives that this is not true, that you love us in spite of our rebellion. And like a good dad, you want us to come into a relationship with you and to live lives that make you famous. So I pray, Lord, you'll help us to see the truth. You'll help us to wade through all of the stuff that we're bombarded with from class, from friends, from wise people, books in the bookstores, um, that we would be able to wade through it all and see that you're good. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Please stand as we sing our final song of invitation.